and welcome to this last episode of our first retail takeover of Real Estate Insights mini-series. I'm Guy Ruddle. And I'm Tiffany Luckett. And you might be able to tell from our from the sound that we're not together. We've been separated by work commitments with Tiffany travelling and everything. I can see you on the screen, Tiffany. I wish we were together. I know, Guy. It's not going to be the same. Still, it's been a good series, hasn't it? We've talked to some good people. Yeah, we've had an amazing lineup of guests for this series. We've talked to Depop, Birotation, Anya Highmarch, Fabletics, Jim Plus Coffee, Jigsaw and Rixo. So if you haven't listened to any of those episodes, do go back and take a look. Yeah, that's a really good idea if you haven't heard any of those episodes. And for this last one, we thought we'd bring it in-house and take a look back at all those conversations we've had and have a look forward at the future of global luxury retail. With two of Savile's finest minds, Marie Hickey is Director of Commercial Research. And Nick Bradstreet is our Head of Asia-Pacific Retail. Thank you so much for both of you being here today. Have you enjoyed the series so far? Yeah, very much so. Um, I have to say, being a relatively recent mum, the Anya Highmarsh, in fact, she's got five kids, I found it absolutely astounding. (laughs) Yeah, I have to say she's quite inspirational, isn't she? She's very much so. Yes. Actually, I was quite interested with the, the community theme. That seems to be a sort of central theme throughout. And... That just brought a recollection to me about when we worked with Lululemon in Hong Kong and Asia and how they built their community was they opened a um, sort of showcase before they opened their main store. They would open a showcase. It would only be open certain days of the week and it would only be at limited hours. But it was a sort of it was a pilot to a test of the market but also to try to build that brand community around them yeah yeah Yeah, i guess if you think about it lululemon was probably one of the first people doing that type of uh, community aspect with all of the free gym classes that they did and then i think shortly after there's been a lot more brands kind of going that way I'll tell you what, what sort of slightly surprised me as a sort of, I mean, you lot are all sort of insiders in the in the industry and I'm slightly on the outside of it. And I was sort of slightly surprised by the sort of absolute enthusiasm for physical retail that everybody who's been on had. You know, some are retrenching and getting a bit smaller in terms of numbers of stores, others are growing. But for everybody, it was a big thing. You know, the physical side of thing was 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 really important to them. Mm. And even even the tech centric brands. So by rotation, um, actually have recently just I know we, they didn't talk about it on the podcast, but I think they've just opened two pop ups this week. So even those brands which are really focused on the app side of their business, they're, they're still wanting to meet their community and their followers in real life. And I think um, it clearly is such a big um, part of their plans for brand expansion. And it's about that inter- interchange, isn't it? How you use the physical to sort of drive growth, both physical retail, but on online as well, that halo effect of having a store. And I don't even like the word store. It's almost like, you know, physical entity of the brand. They're just spaces and it's really down to the brand and how they use that space. It might not actually be about selling product, which was the case with Depop. I think one actually, one point came up about the um, the first point, touch point, uh, for a brand is often the store and the the store person the salesperson you know if she or he's a great ambassador of the brand then it goes enormously long way to sort of loyalty you know for the consumer to come back if there's a good experience at the store and the service is good you know 
the consumer will come back. And, and so from speaking to brands, that's actually such an important point because I've spoken to what I remember speaking to one brand in particular, I won't name the name, but they opened a store and they were not trading well at all. Um, really disappointed with the sales, they changed their manager and literally within a week or two, the the, the store was just completely transformed so that the, the staff in store are so fundamental to actually how they um, sell products, but also Nick, like how they keep customers coming back as well. And I suppose you could say in terms of luxury, I mean, they're really taking it to the next level in terms of how they're sort of thinking about the stores and how they use the stores right across providing touch pe- touch points for all different types of consumers. I know, Tiffany, you went to the Dior store in Paris, and I, th- I suppose that's the, the ultimate in terms of brand experience. Yes, I did. And um, it was really interesting, actually, because there were queues outside the store at 10 a.m. before it even opens and it's such an incredible space that is just a true reflection of the brand the brands and people are really truly seeking out going to Paris even just visiting the city so that they can see the store and experience that kind of Dior aesthetic I guess. Is that whole thing then is that sort of a reflection of the global luxury retail side of things generally? Marie you you've you publish your annual globally luxury global luxury retail. It's easy for me to say uh, report uh, a couple of months ago, uh, and I think is is one of the features of that, one of the themes that actually this end of the market, this really high end of the market, has has survived the the turmoils of the last few years better than most. Yeah, I think it, it's definitely you know, has been the most resilient part of the retail market in general. And I think, you know, as we're entering a period of further instability, particularly the ultra luxury brands, you know, should continue to be resilient. I think what's really interesting, you know, in the report, you know, what we do is we track new store openings by luxury brands, every luxury brand anywhere in the world. And, they, are, they still value a physical store. And this is all about community engaging with customers. I think what's really interesting in the luxury space, particularly with the brands, you know, the mega brands such as Dior, is they're just taking it now a one, one step further. They're not going to open, you know, five or six of these stores similar to what they've opened in Paris in uh, 30 Montaigne. But it's about having these one or two key stores, which is an embodiment of the brand. It has a restaurant. It has a gallery space. It has, you know, the full range of product, beauty, accessories. So it is a real destination. And it it is all about, at the end of the day, community and keeping your VIP shoppers happy, but also, you know, keeping those that may only buy a Dior lipstick, but they still want to come in and have a connection with the brand. And Marie, you also look um, when you're doing your research at the top kind of cities globally. And how has that changed in the last kind of few years since pre and post COVID? I think what's been really interesting post COVID or the period during COVID to now is again about the community, about how the luxury brands have decided to get closer to their key consumer so pre-covid it was you know key destination cities new york london um you know hong kong la those cities are still very important but we've 
definitely seen increased activity in China. Um, a lot of that has been down to the fact that, you know, Chinese consumers, big driver of luxury retail sales globally, couldn't travel. So it made perfect sense is just to focus, you know, new store openings in that market. But while it's the Shanghai's, Beijing, Shenzhen's, you know, they've been opening stores in second, third tier markets. And I know, Nick, you're very familiar with that market. But also just in North America, we've seen openings in cities like Dallas, Atlanta. We've seen increased activity in Middle East, in Saudi Arabia. It's essentially about getting closer to your consumer. And also the fact that the payback periods on stores on some of these second and third tier cities are much much quicker and nick how have you seen that in asia because i guess there's been especially in china recently there's been a lot of lockdowns um prior to that a lot of the luxury brands were opening stores and had big plans for china how, how have they reacted to what's been happening recently yeah the it's, it's changed but um asia's you know is now the largest um, global market in the world, global luxury market in the world. I think Asia represents about 39% or nearly 40% of total luxury sales. And you can only just see that increasing. Interesting, Marie saying the payback period is quicker in secondary cities. And she's absolutely right. The payback can be very quick. Rents are just generally cheaper in those cities. Sometimes there's capex given by landlords. And so the payback is very quick. And what do you mean by tier one and tier two cities? The tier one cities are the, the key growth cities, the big cities, Shanghai, Beijing, and then you've got Guangzhou, Shenzhen. Those are sort of the big guys. But you've got some very strong tier two cities, Chengdu, Wuhan, whatever. You know, the, this, they're good cities for luxury brands. And um, actually in Wuhan recently, on the first day that the new Hermes store opened there post-lockdown, they did $4.4 million in one day. Yes. I mean, that's very strong markets indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, I, I, I'm lucky enough in my working life to talk to lots of businesses which are growing very fast and often internationally and often in that region, particularly in China. And, and the thing that keeps coming up is they, always, they all say they need specialist help with that part of the world, with understanding that part of the world. Is that true for... For big brand, you know, sort of luxury brands opening stores as well. Um, China has got easier to c come into. You can go direct uh, as a retailer, no problem at all. Unlike some of the Southeast Asian uh, countries like maybe Indonesia, the Philippines, where you have to go in with a partner and that gets a little bit more complicated. China, you can go direct. And you've got the you've got the support around you. You've got the lawyers and the accountants, and it's it's a wild trodden path. So it it's very easy. Historically, in the past, a lot of the brands would use Hong Kong as as um, as a jumping point. You don't actually need to do that anymore. Still, brands do because they still feel comfortable there. But you know, you can easily go direct. And there's quite a few new markets emerging in Asia as well. I guess as luxury brands look to increase and grow, they're looking at new markets as well. Yes. Well, I, again, sort of post-COVID, things have changed a bit. So we've had the lockdown. The stopping of the borders or the restriction of the borders actually has been good for the luxury brands because you've got this huge internal consumption going on and the brands have done tremendously well. But when they actually had the lockdown where stores were physically closed – Obviously, the brands had to look around for other growth. And 
And they're seeing the growth in Southeast Asia, particularly in Vietnam, a lot of interest in Vietnam because you've got this young consumer, young population. A lot of them have been educated in the US. They're young guys. They're coming back in their mid-30s. They've got money, perhaps their own money or parents' money, and they want to do something. And they've got these, these bright ideas. Other areas like Singapore is growing. Everyone feels very comfortable there. The luxury brands have got a good base. There's a lot going on in Southeast Asia. Marie, has the has the way brand, these brands approach the market, the way they you know they go to market, has that changed at all? Do they used to do more perhaps in the sort of you know through wholesale and now more direct or whatever, or or, or has, has it always really been pretty much as it is now? No, I think there's definitely been a trend towards more direct sales and that's been going on for like 10, 15 years and that has really driven that growth in luxury store count um, for many because it is, it's, and it comes back to that point I made earlier, it's about connection with your customer to reinforce sales and connection with the brand and Ultimately, you know, it is potentially more profitable to to go direct, um, and I think we're just we're just going to see more of that and see brands look to their stores and even look to new types of areas to have that connection. I mean, as well as you know, opening permanent stores in sort of you know you could call them new markets, you know, not traditional luxury hotspots like an Atlanta or Dallas or a Wuhan. But we've also seen luxury brands do pop-ups in resort markets like ski resorts, for example, both in China and in the US. Um, Obviously, some luxury brands looking at the Greek islands, which I'm happy to go and help them scope out a few opportunities. Um, I'll see you there. (laughs) uh, So we're definitely seeing that, you know, that focus on, go in direct and just going back to a point that Nick made which was interesting about how brands are going direct into China we've seen a couple of US luxury brands go direct into China before coming to Europe so historically it was a kind of okay we're US we'll come into London first Europe because that's familiar then we might go to Asia they're now going no we're just going straight to Asia straight into China because that is the engine of growth. So I think that's an interesting trend. And it does raise a question about the attractiveness of the more established destination cities such as London and Paris, for example. Continue to be very strong fundamentally, but it does raise a, a increased competition, I think, from China and Asia. And Nick, Going on that point, when do you think, when are we predicting that you're going to see the Chinese consumer come back to London and Paris? Are they going to come back? I think definitely they're going to come back. Um, you know, in terms of jumping on a plane, uh, the Chinese within China were jumping on a plane immediately. And our offices were flying off to the different cities. Um, planes were full. Um, so I think... There's no, you know, no one's scared about getting on a plane. Um, how long will it take to open up? Um, they're still very set on zero COVID. Um, I think realistically, no one thinks it's going to be until next year. Hong Kong might be at the end of this year, open up. 
China itself, I think probably sometime next year. I think IATA, the you know the the International Aviation Travel Group, feel that the long term, uh, long haul Chinese you know tourist, it's going to take it two or three years. Um, it could be two thousand and twenty five. And Marie in London. I mean, typically, lots of the luxury landlords are always very um, concerned over whether the Chinese shop is going to come back, and they see Chinese customers as being, you know, really great for the luxury brands. But we've seen good sales in London recently. Can you tell us a bit about who's making these um, purchases? I think the Chinese luxury consumer is so important because it adds that froth. So if you have the froth to the sales of certain markets like a Paris or London. But in a London context, they've historically, you know, we've not attracted that many Chinese tourists compared to a city like Paris, which is about a million a year, and we've been about 250,000. I think what we've seen recently, and it just highlights that fundamentals, is there is a very sizable, ultra-wealthy population whether that's primary residences or second homes so if you look at all the cities globally based on their ultra high net worth population it goes new york then london and these people are continuing to spend and that's really been supporting you know luxury sales in in london um yes it's great to have the froth of the chinese consumer and uh, we do hope they'll come back but you know, there is a lot of wealth here in the city. Can we change subject a bit and talk about ESG? Because, well, one, because you can't really do anything these days without talking about ESG in one form or another. But it was something that came up in all the in all the previous episodes. You know, everybody wanted to talk about it. Uh, Marie, in, in, in your report, is it... Is it a big thing right now for all brands? I don't know. Fashion has this, you know, all these bad figures... Uh, as does property about you know carbon usage are they really getting on board with it to talk generally i think yes the retail sector luxury sector is definitely getting on board with it um i think in terms of the carbon footprint um it is largely tied up in you know production supply chain rather than the actual selling of product from a retail store so we're not necessarily seeing ESG credentials um, shape store requirements so for example a luxury brand isn't going to choose a store because it's a Briam outstanding what what is key is the location and and the, the pitch and the nature of the unit but that might change at some point in the future. I mean, there's a big question mark over how a brand can continue to reduce its carbon footprint if it is pursuing a growth strategy. Because if you're selling more stuff, that ultimately should mean that your carbon footprint is expanding. But I think over the next few years, we could really see luxury brands really start to tackle that. And Nick, at the risk of sort of smashing together two different thoughts, uh, the the, the, I mean, you know, traditionally, there's a there's a feeling in in the West that that Asia and China, and particularly China, is less concerned about net zero. But also, as Tiffany said, that we talked to to, to Depop and we talked to by rotation who are in the resale or and in fact rental business and things like that. Generally, in your part of the world, are businesses like that get, uh, uh, present? And is there a less 
focus on ESG generally? I think there there is less focus. Um, I think as you you know Marie's point about um, the retailers. I mean, they will pick their location on uh, on their store on the location of footfall and what they can achieve on sales. Um, of course, offices is slightly different. An office user, you want you know you go to a platinum lead um, building. It's green. You tick the box. Okay, that's one. You may choose one, another building, which you may you know take off the from the criteria one which doesn't match those requirements. But retail is really about footfall. But I think it's ESG is definitely starting talking now. People don't really know quite what it is. They're saying we must do this. Uh, this is often landlords. We must do this tell us what it means what do we have to do um but i think retailers are much more aware you listen to Anya Heimarch, you know her comment you know you've got to build products for longevity stop the waste and i think you know so the retailers these international retailers uh, who may be headquartered in london or paris who are in china you know they're thinking of that all the time i think now it's coming through they've got a that message has got to be very strong to their consumer because their consumer is wanting, you know, no waste, less plastic, less pollution. Um, so they've got to have that story out there, whether they're in China or, or in the West. Marie, I know you track a lot of the M&A activity that's going on in the luxury market, especially. Tell us about what you're looking at and how that kind of generates store growth. Yeah, I think what's going back to the point we were saying about, you know, luxury have been really resilient um, since the pandemic. And that's particularly evidence when you look at um, M&A activity in luxury space. So 2021 was actually a peak year for activity. So we saw about $31 billion worth of um transactions. I mean, a large part of that can be attributed to the acquisition of Tiffany by LVMH. But even in terms of deal count, it was twice of what we saw in 2019. I think what's been interesting is what the luxury groups, the big luxury groups have been investing into. They've been Mm -hmm. very much driving that growth. Um, And while there has been some investment into luxury resale, I think resales definitely become the new streetwear. Um, but they've really been acquiring smaller luxury brands, taking it into their stable, so to speak, to then cultivate and grow those brands. I think what would be really interesting, I, I think it has been the case historically, we'll see you know, those acquired brands, those brands that have received investment from the big groups, look to expand their store networks or look to reposition, um, optimize their existing store network. So really, it's about driving growth. And this comes back to the whole point that the importance of the store in driving bottom line growth for these luxury brands and these luxury groups. So I think over the next few years, we could see a pickup in new store activity. And actually, interestingly, on the M&A activity stuff, um, I think that's also a way, going back to the sustainability point, that these brands will start to grow. Because if you look at some of the brands, I think it was RM Williams recently invested into a um, plant-based leather manufacturer. I've seen quite a few other retailers investing into these kind of like new um, scientific ways of making materials. So I think that will be a massive trend um, in terms of the investment side. Just to add a little bit, with this M&A going on and the big groups getting bigger it's having big implications on the 
the smaller brands because they're getting nudged out of their stores in the shopping centers. So as those big three groups come in, they're insisting to the landlord, we want our new brand to come in and we want them on the level one, the ground floor. We want you to move this smaller guy out. So it's getting more and more difficult for these small independent brands as the big guys, you know, bring more brands under their umbrella. Mm, They're really monopolizing the market. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. We have talked about so many different topics in this episode. I think we've really covered everything that we talked about throughout the podcast series so far. Um, But it's been really great to chat to you both. Yes, thank you both very much for that. And you can find the full global luxury report, Marie's report, on the research section of the Savills website, savills.co.uk slash research. Loads of detail there and all of it good stuff. Well, Tiffany, uh, that's the end of our of our mini series. I, I feel a bit sad. I've really enjoyed it, and thank you for being my being my friend for this time. And I've learned so much as well. I know. I'm sad it's all over, but um, I think it was an, an amazing thing to be a part of, and we've had so many great guests. And hopefully, everyone's really enjoyed listening to it. Well, I hope they have, and who knows? Maybe we'll get to do it again sometime. And I should perhaps, uh, we should perhaps remind people one more time that if they haven't heard the other episodes, uh, they can do so by subscribing to us uh, using their usual podcast providers. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.